of ABC's Lost to see how the episode fits into the series as a whole. Today, I'll be looking at episode 508, entitled La Flore. This is the 94th episode of the series, and there are 27 to go. Before we jump straight into the Wikipedia summary, a quick note of correction. Uh, as uh, pointed out by Mighty Tim on Twitter uh, last week, uh, I don't think I quite spoke up enough as I said that uh, with that episode that there were 28 episodes to go. Uh, It certainly sounded to him, and indeed to my ears, that I said that there were 20 to go, and uh, as he nitpickingly pointed out, with uh, all all that uh, said appreciatingly, uh, it is, of course, last week 28 to go, and this week 27 with LaFleur. So with that, let's now get to the Wikipedia summary for LaFleur, and following the events of this place's death, a time jump briefly takes the remaining group of survivors, Sawyer, Juliet, Miles, Daniel, and Jin, to a time where there is an ancient statue standing on the island, the remnants of which are seen and live together, die alone. They are only able to see the back of it before John Locke turns the wheel, bringing the survivors forward to 1974, at the peak of the Dharma Initiative's presence on the island. Now that John has pushed the wheel, the time jumps have stopped and they are stuck. In the past, the group comes across a pair of Dharma Initiative members who have been captured by two of the island's native inhabitants, known as the Others. Juliet and Sawyer kill the Others and free Amy, but her husband, Paul, has been killed. The group returns to the barracks where Amy resides. However, she tricks them into walking through the sonic fence which surrounds the barracks, knocking them unconscious. Sawyer wakes up and is confronted by Horace Goodspeed, the leader of the Dharma Initiative on the island. Sawyer tells him that his name is James LaFleur, and that he and the other survivors were part of a shipwreck on the island, and that they are still looking for other members of their crew. Horace tells him that they will have to leave the next day on the submarine because they are not Dharma material. Meanwhile, Daniel sees Charlotte as a young girl, but decides not to say anything to her. That night, the spokesman of the others, Richard Albert, enters the barracks to determine why his treaty with Dharma was broken. Sawyer convinces Albert not to attack Dharma because he is the one who killed the others. Albert is further convinced when Sawyer shares knowledge of the events that transpired in 1954 in the episode Jughead. Because Sawyer has successfully diffused the situation, Horace allows the group to stay and look for the other crew members of their ship when in reality they are waiting for Locke to return with the survivors who left the island. Three years later, the survivors have joined Dharma and are living in the barracks. Sawyer is well respected as the head of security, while Jin, who is now fluent in English, continues to search for those who left the island. Amy is pregnant with Horace's baby and due to give birth in two weeks. Juliet successfully delivers the baby, 
the first that survived in all her time on the island. Horace believes that Amy is not yet over her deceased husband, however Sawyer reassures him by stating that three years is enough time to get over someone, referring to his relationship with Kate. Sawyer returns home where he lives with Juliet, with whom he is now in a relationship. The next morning he receives a call from Jin, who has found Kate, Jack, and Hurley in the jungle as seen in 316. Sawyer secretly meets them far from the barracks where they are reunited. And with that, friends, let's now get into my thoughts about the episode. And I'll start by saying, I think, at least based on my rewatch, that this is an overlooked episode. I know that it's appreciated for you know, advancing the cute and wonderful Sawyer and uh, Juliet romance. Indeed, uh, I would argue, uh, advancing it from almost nothing to, to full blossom. Um, it's neat to see the Dharma 70s stuff, Sawyer and Juliet and everybody dressed in their 70s gear and looking all kind of happy, hippy-dippy. Uh, but what what a wonderful episode. I, I think numerous times in my lengthy notes, indeed, buckle up for a, a longer podcast, I think, um, I just had to use the word brilliant because I think that that's what this episode is. Surprising coming from writer Elizabeth Sarnoff, if you listened to my uh, Alcatraz podcast that started uh, about a year ago, but we won't, uh, we won't uh, ponder her contributions to television and indeed just jump into the episode. The, uh, the episode starts with a snappy recap of island time hopping, bloody noses, and Charlotte's death. The episode proper starts with Sawyer pawing at the orchid rope, familiar territory, uh, as, as much of the teaser act, certainly. Indeed, watching the teaser act, it had me checking and then rechecking and checking a third time that I was in the right episode, that I hadn't clicked some other one. Uh, it's really a seamless transition from things that we've previously seen to, um, to new material and kind of integrating the two in a new way. We see the one last jump for Sawyer, Juliet, Jin, and Miles, uh, we, of course, have seen the other end completely of this uh, of this last jump, Locke resetting the donkey wheel. And with that last jump, Sawyer finds the orchid well now both there and completely filled up. Um, and at this point, there exists one of the truly gasp-worthy moments of the show. Now, I don't mean to underplay the other shocking things that the show certainly has done. But I think that for most of us, the first time that we saw Sawyer say that they'll wait as long as it takes for, for Locke to bring the other survivors back, then the screen went to black and text appeared saying three years later. I think that that was shocking enough to elicit an audible gasp. I know for me, I certainly knew it was coming, the three-year wait, which mirrors the three years that the Ajira bunch is back in Los Angeles, but... My goodness, the notion that he says, well, we'll just wait, boom, three years later. It's worth mentioning, too, that uh, and I know that this, uh, this mirrors uh, a bit of trivia um, from, uh, from uh, when Jack and uh, you know, what will become the Oceanic Six when we first see them on, uh, on Penny's boat. But concerning certainly Sawyer and Jin, um, we've been with those people on the island nonstop since the crash. And, um, I mean, yes, there's kind of been this time jumping stuff, but we've seen Sawyer's complete island story. We've seen Jin's complete island story. And 
just as the Oceanic Six people had that that first break in the nonstop island story, uh, which was the week that they spent on on Penny's boat. Um, you know, kind of when Sawyer says, well, wait as long as it takes, that essentially is then the final last bit of the continuous island story. Um, again, at least from the perspective of Sawyer and Jin, you know, less so from the chronological, uh, you know, story of the island. But um, it's a moment. It's just, you know, it's it, we go from a nonstop story to a stop and a skip. And as shocking as it is, Three years later, the teaser act is not over yet. Indeed, we've returned to that familiar, unfamiliar territory that the show so enjoys. We don't know where we are. We don't know when we are. We're taken away from the familiar characters. All we know is it's three years later. It's familiar because we see hands adjusting 1970s equipment close up. Then, vaguely yet accurately, 1970s Dharma folks... What are they doing? Well, I guess you could say that they're just having a hootenanny. Are you kidding me? I'm gone ten minutes and you're having a hootenanny? Don't be such a bummer, man. Rosie was just dropping off some brownies. You should thank her. <laughs> she shouldn't be here, Jerry. We're on the clock, man. Ah, mellow out, Phil. What's gonna happen, huh? The polar bears are gonna figure a way out of their cages? <laughs> That's not the point. <laughs> If LaFleur finds out what you're doing, LaFleur's not going to find out. My ass, man. I'm the one who's going to have to Guys? answer to him. Relax, man. Nobody's going to find out. Guys? What? As they see a despondent and, ironically, familiar Horace chucking dynamite at trees, the key to this scene is apparent to hook us in once again to a brand new world with brand new people, to make us abandon briefly the connection that we have with our old characters. There is, though, the great question of that mysterious LaFleur, the thing propelling this teaser act forward. Now, perhaps it's just the memory of this wonderful stretch of the season, but I wonder how many first-time viewers really were, were having a mental conversation at this point in the episode as to who LaFleur really, really was. Um, is it uh, yet another instance of the show placing us a bit ahead of the reveal, a la Jin discovering Danielle? Um, or was it just a good old, you know, fun mystery that, that doesn't last uh, for too long? Um, certainly the latter is true. It's surely an instance where things are not stretched out endlessly. Uh, we see these two security lackeys running to the barracks and... What? <clears throat> Mr. LaFleur, sorry to bother you, but we got a situation out at the pylons. What kind of situation? Uh, it's uh, Horace. He's got dynamite, and he's blowing up trees. Son of a bitch. This is truly lost at its most rollercoasty, the writerly daring to cut out of the middle of the Dharmacon, skip straight to things being settled, and to do it in the course of one single scene. It's, it's just wonderful. Yes, the episode is populated with flashbacks on how that came to be, and we'll certainly talk more about uh, the effectiveness of doing it that way. 
versus uh, kind of a straight chronological uh, presentation. You know, we'll talk about that in a bit. But I mean, what daring to say, well, wait as long as it takes. And what do these, you know, what do our, our four time jumping survivors have? Little more than the clothes on their back. To then say three years later, at least Sawyer, and certainly at this point, as first time viewers, you could uh, assume that it's everyone else, are fully integrated into the most familiarly civilized people. Uh, on the island. It's just, uh, tr you know, tremendous, tremendous fun. At any rate, as you heard there, we're going to take into the, uh, the title card. After the act break, it's just another day at the office with Miles as the deputy and Sawyer keeping things hush-hush about their drunken leader in order to preserve the status quo of their, of their little town. It's, uh, I mean, just think about that for one moment. Think of how far Sawyer has come. Here he's come from being the outside, escaping the law, to he is the law. He's helping Mayor Horace sweep under the rug the little, you know, drunken indiscretion because he had a fight with his wife. Nothing too terribly bad, just kind of what what the township folk in Dharmaville do for each other. It's just, you know, how far they've come. And it's tremendous fun to watch it draws us in as viewers first time and repeat alike and they continue introducing these characters that do just that that, that continue to draw us in we meet horace's wife amy who's pregnant very pregnant and as the baby starts to come quote jim close quote as in jim lafleur the name jim having been mentioned and almost mumbled by a passing amy clearly an attempt by the writers for us to pause and say, wait, did she say Jim? Anyhow, with all that, Jim declares, oh hell, and we flash back to three years previous, apparently shortly after that final jump. Now, for all the razzmatazz of the main 70s disco dharma party story, the, the overall story is brave enough to pause on Daniel mourning for Charlotte. There's a bit of meaningful exposition thrown in there. Time jumps are over, of course, and wherever, no, whenever we are, we're here to stay. But mostly it's just that well-earned, albeit late, moment of saying goodbye to Charlotte. And indeed, the person saying goodbye is the one that, uh, frankly, that loved her most, that loved her, perhaps the only one that loved her out of the group. At any rate, there's a discussion of where to go, and it's all just hammered home by some truly excellent dialogue. Okay, swell. Till Dan checks back in, I say we head back to the beach. When Locke gets back with everybody, that's where they'll be looking for us. The beach? Well, you didn't get enough flaming arrows shot at you? And your camp is gone. Why bother? Sorry's right, Miles. We should go back to the beach. We survived there before. We can do it again. Or maybe when we get there, you'll you'll want to go back to the orchid again. And then when that gets boring, we can head back to the beach. It's the only two plans you people have. Hey, zip it. I'm heading back to the beach. If our stuff's there, great. If not, we build new stuff. You don't like the plan? Good luck. We'll put him in charge. In previous episodes, I've observed that Miles was essentially a Sawyer type. Uh, someone who, after being introduced, uh, you know, just kind of fit that Sawyer mold. And 
here we see a brilliant pairing, particularly now that Sawyer is himself more sympathetic and integrated into the group. Now, yes, there's a rather small group here, but just Sawyer's ability to be part of, uh, to be part of the community, whether it's a community of four or a community of 40 survivors or a community of Dharma. It's Miles who takes the lead as the sardonic, acidic outsider. And it's all the more contrast for things uh, seen chronologically later, as seen earlier in the episode, where Sawyer and Miles are thick as thieves for Dharma. Indeed, I think that a lot of this flashback story in this episode is about showing growth. When Juliet backs Sawyer for his beach plan, it's the first nudge towards their romance. Similarly, showing Miles and Sawyer so far apart on 70s day one is a logical starting point uh, in order to show where they have grown so that they have this bond, or how they have grown, rather, so that they have this bond three years later. What comes along next uh, indeed continues the Sawyer and Juliet growth, but not before a silent, weary shot of our heroes trudging along until the camera seems to find Sawyer and Juliet and moves in to capture their conversation. Uh, There's the briefest hint of them working together, but not before being interrupted by gunfire, not directed at them, lucky for them, but instead a Good old other-on-other killing in the distance, or at least so it would appear. We'll learn, of course, it's actually other-on-dharma. But can they get involved, our heroes? Time to boil down some difficult-to-understand temporal concepts into a brief, memorable line. Who do you think they are? Who cares who they are? We don't even know when they are. Hey, Dan, we don't get involved, right? That's what you said. It doesn't matter what we do. Whatever happened, happened. Yeah, thanks anyway, Plato. I'm going over there. You still got my back. Absolutely. Come on, come on, come to me. Come on, come on. Come on, come on. Come on, come on. Come on, That was, of course, Juliet very much having Sawyer's back by way of shooting one baddie before Sawyer dispenses of another. And who does Sawyer save? The woman, in a nice fit for this jam-packed episode, is Amy, a la Horace's Amy. It's all right. It's okay. You're safe. It's over. Who are you? We get the act break, and afterwards, there's a neat breakdown of events. Juliet IDing the jumpsuits in the 70s, 80s Dharma. Jin throwing an other walkie to Sawyer. Sawyer convincingly giving the sad eyes to Amy as he explains they shipwrecked here on the way to Tahiti, and Amy mentioning in passing that the baddies must be buried, lest <gasps> the treaty. The crux of the scene is so smart. Amy is in need, she's Dharma and Sawyer sees a way in. But how in the world can they get in? Uh, Can they really convince the others? All right, listen up. 
When we get there, there's going to be a lot of questions. So just keep your mouth shut. Let me do the talking. You really think you can convince them that we were in a boat wreck? I'm a professional. I used to lie for a living. Daniel, stop! At this point, they've arrived at the sonic fence, certainly a deadly point, as we've seen before. Amy wonders what the problem is. Juliet, who did not once lie for a living, wonders aloud if it's a sonic fence or something. Yes, because it's obviously a sonic fence if you have no idea what it is. Uh, This, of course, is picked up on later by Sawyer, who intimates as much. Um, It does, however, raise Amy's suspicions, but Sawyer at this point plays it hard. They saved her life, after all. At this point, things are feeling like a wonderful Sawyer con. No one to hold him and no one to fold him. That is until Amy crosses uh, the line just fine, but our heroes do not, falling to the ground. Amy takes out her sneakily applied earplugs, and you might be thinking at this point, act break, but instead it's back to three years earlier. Or later. See, even this episode can be confusing. Three years later. Uh, And indeed, Amy, that sneaky duck that she is, she's in labor. The kind of screamy, grunty TV labor that goes along with labor gone bad. There being no qualified doctor in the house, Sawyer rushes to get Motor Pool Juliet, who works on Dharma vans by day and has extensive obstetrical knowledge by night. Her pleading reminder that she hasn't successfully delivered a baby on the island ever overshadows intentionally, I think, a delicious little clue. Sawyer wondering if whatever happened to cause that hasn't happened yet. An incident, perhaps? It's also Sawyer at his elemental best. The man we know, he is deep down. There's a woman in need, and he's going to see that help is, uh, is brought her way. That's followed by a fun little scene of Motorpool Juliet rattling off a list of techniques and tools on her radar, with internist Dr. Man incredulous. Between Sawyer declaring that he, Sawyer, is speaking for Horace, and Amy gutturally declaring she wants Juliet, the discussion is over. I'll just mention that I'm not quite sure how to read Amy's insistence, a sort of amusing, she's having a baby nine months movie version of, oh, that crazy pregnant lady, or some sort of deep maternal knowledge. Anyway, outside the infirmary, Sawyer brings Jin up to speed, references made to the Sawyer-Jin search for their people, And faster than you can say cesarean section, Juliet comes out with tears in her eyes, faking us out to the result that all are fine and it was a boy. Yippee! There's a happy act break. A rarity for the show, certainly. Uh, I think it's not the only one in this episode, though. Then bearded Sawyer wakes up. That's a clue for everyone at home that it's now three years ago again. Anyhow, Horace is doing the questioning, and what unfolds is a really fun little bit of story. Had the decision been made to present this episode in chronological order, a tempting decision, the benefit would have been uh, the dramatic question of, will it work? But, but, is there any dramatic benefit to A, it not working and the Dharma folks killing our people, or B, Dharma kicking our people out of the jungle, or pardon me, out into the jungle where they just live like they were living for all the previous seasons? No, 
no to both of those options. We would not have bought uh, into the question, will it work? Because we expect all to work out in the end. Doubly so, since this storyline was introduced by Jin meeting Jack, Kate, and Hurley in the 70s van two weeks ago. Instead, the focus on how it worked, how it happened, is what this episode is about. And note in this clip uh, that I'm about to play that after the big questions, Sawyer pauses. It's always with this emotional, stunned look in his face, a la, why are you asking me that, you bad man? Internally, though, it's Sawyer pausing to think of a great, conning answer. So, why don't you tell me who the hell you are? My name's James LaFleur. You can call me Jim. How'd you get to the island, Jim? If my friends are safe, why are you asking me all the questions? They told me I need to talk to you. That you're the boat captain. We got caught in a storm, shipwrecked. Almost hit the reef. Thankfully, we washed up on shore. What kind of ship? Salvage vessel. Searching for a famous lost wreck. It's an old slaver out of Portsmouth, England, called Black Rock. Ever heard of her? Can't say that I have. So, once you got washed ashore, why were you then wandering around in the jungle? Some of our crew were missing. We were looking for them. That's when we came upon your girl instead. Mm. Well, <clears throat> I tell you what, Jim. If your crew shows up, we'll send them along with you. Send them where? There's a submarine that leaves this island first thing in the morning. You and your friends are going to get on it. It's going to drop you off in Tahiti. You can find your way home from there. Hold on a minute, Chief. We just saved that woman's life. Doesn't that earn us a week or two to find the rest of our people? Nope. Only people that are allowed to stay on this compound are members of the Dharma Initiative. And look, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, please, Jim, but you are not Dharma material. Rewatching that scene, I found myself holding my breath at points. It's such a wonderful high wire act as Sawyer sets his story that it doesn't work in that scene, that they're apparently being kicked off the island, albeit in salvagers looking for the Black Rock, might be a surprise to first-time viewers. But, of course, each episode has its dramatic flow to it. We are just a little bit past the halfway point now, and there is, of course, time to fill. Uh, meanwhile, the story moves to Juliet, Miles, Jin, and Daniel, sitting around the table outside. Curiously, the camera work, although not curiously in a, in a moment, as we'll discover, uh, the camera work spins around them, and Juliet and Miles discuss Juliet's time with the others. As Jin asks Daniel if there are more flashes, the circular camera work becomes subtly obvious. Daniel mumber, mumbles that the record is spinning again, but they aren't on the song they want. It's another extremely elegant and easy way to explain time travel. There's the long way around the record, or the short way jumping from track to track, and our heroes have done the latter. At any rate, Sawyer and Horace arrive to debrief all, and there's quickly an alarm, and they're all taken to Heather's cabin. Now, at this point, the show doesn't oversell it, but it clearly is, or was, or will be Juliet's in the future, in our past. Anyhow... 
It's going to be one day Juliet's cabin. I'm, I'm, I'm sure of it. And not just kind of in the short term, you know, she's in it three years later. It's the same, uh, the same shape to it. Anyhow, uh, with that, a lone torch-bearing figure appears, and though shot first from behind, then in the shadows, we can recognize Richard anywhere, and so too do Juliet and Sawyer. Uh-oh. The shock takes us to an act break, and then the scene continues. Hello, Mr. Alpert. Oh, Mr. Goodspeed. I wish you would have told me you were coming. I would have turned the fence off for you. That fence may keep other things out, but not us. No, the only thing that does keep us out, Horace, is our truce, which you've now broken. I don't know what you're talking about. Where are my two men? As Richard proceeds to tell off Horace, the camera moves back inside, with panic starting to set in a bit. It increases when Horace comes in, asking how well the bodies are buried, then ordering an increase in ordinance in the setting of the ominous Condition 1. Sawyer, peacemaker, sees another way out of the Richard problem. Let me talk to him. Excuse me? Your buddy out there with the eyeliner, let me talk to him. We had a truce with these people. You don't understand. I understand I'm the one that killed his men. And I'm the one that's going to go out there and tell him why I did it. I can't let you do that. That's a good thing I ain't asking your permission. James, are you sure you know what you're doing? Not yet, but I'll figure something out. Hello, Richard. I'm sorry, do we know each other? I'm the guy that killed your men. Heard some gunshots. Saw two men throwing a bag over a woman's head. Gave him a chance to throw the weapons down and walk away. One of them took a shot at me, and I defended myself. That's so? That's so. Your people know that you're telling me this? Ain't my people, boss. So if you got some kind of a truce with them, it ain't been broken. You're not a member of a Dharma initiative, then what are you? Did you bury the bomb? Excuse me? The hydrogen bomb with Jughead written on the side. Did you bury it? What? Yeah, I know about it. I also know 20 years ago, some bald fella limped into your camp and fed you some mumble jumble about being your leader. And then poof. Disappeared right in front of you. He was ringing a bell. That man's name is John Locke. I'm waiting for him to come back. So, you still think I'm a member of the damn Dharma Initiative? No. Guess I don't. But no matter who you are, two of my men are dead. And my people need some kind of justice. What are we going to do about that? I said earlier that this episode is frequently brilliant, and I really, really think that it is the case. We see in that clip the disparate parts of the story, uh, 
are, are coming together here, the, the events we've seen in previous episodes, and Sawyer is using them as smoke and mirrors, uh, albeit they're true smoke and they're true mirrors, but it's being used in a way, obviously, to dispel Richard's urgency. And Sawyer delivers it with this whiff of being on some sort of parallel other mission, uh, perhaps of the same ilk as Richard's, but not part of Camp Other, if you will. Uh, it's just this really nice bringing together of, of you know, Sawyer's con background and the need for him to, to um, deal his way into the Dharma Initiative and uh, and using his his previous knowledge of Richard and and whatnot, it's just really really well done. Still, though, as uh, as the clip mentioned in its conclusion, uh, there is that pound of f- flesh demanded by Richard, and it comes in the form of the body of Paul, Amy's dead fiance. Kudos here, it's real kudos, heartfelt kudos to actor Doug, Doug Hutchinson who plays uh, Horace, who despite his real-world decisions of the odd variety, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, he, in this scene, imparts Horace with a sort of sympathetic, forceful, backseat, wise leadership. He's telling Amy that she has to give up Paul's body, but leaves it up to her, but not really. It's just something tremendously well-acted on his part. Um... I don't mean to suggest, though, that Horace is a Machiavellian leader. He does tell Jim LaFleur uh, that the sub will be back in two weeks, so as a sense of thanks, uh, Sawyer and company can wait until being you know, kicked out until then, and he, Sawyer, and we absolutely see that uh, as an opening. Um, it's it's that just enough to to get them in the door. With that, Sawyer tells Juliet, who is hanging out by said sub, uh, a sub that she wants to take her home, to take her off the island. And what unfolds is a sparkling, wonderful scene, down to Giacchino hammering home the moment that their romance truly starts to flourish. You do realize, it's 1974. Whatever it is you think you're going back to, don't exist yet. It's not a reason not to go. Well, what about me? You're really gonna leave me here with the mad scientist and Mr. I speak to dead people? And Jen, who's a hell of a nice guy, but not exactly the greatest conversationalist. You'll be fine. Maybe. I'm just gonna get my back. Two weeks. That's all I'm asking. Two weeks. All right, two weeks. The smiles exchanged by the two of them are indeed those of a beginning, and we get to the middle of that story in one of the gutsiest moves in the series. Juliet declares those two weeks, and on screen we're told it's again three years later. 1977 Sawyer happily saunters along uh, on his way to uh, Juliet's house, now reclaimed, mind you, 
and there's just this happiness in the air. There's this sense of, of everything being just fine, being safe, being secure. It feels that everything is right, that it's deeply, deeply right. It smells good. Hey there. Was that for me? no pretense, with no irony, with no humor, with no science fiction, with no horror, with, with nothing that, uh, that one would think defines the show, when indeed we know that it does not. That is how the act ends. After the act break, Hangover Horace wakes up on Sawyer's couch, and irony of ironies, as that's how they met, of course, in reverse. And Sawyer gives the wonderfully written good news, bad news. The baby was born, and Horace missed it. Why Horace went on a bender is explained. Uh, Amy had Paul's necklace from his death three years ago. And Horace asks a question which, despite this enchanting, largely self-contained episode, reminds us that there's an even bigger story at hand. It's only been three years, Jim just three years that he's been gone. Is that really long enough to get over someone? I had a thing for a girl once. And I had a shot at her. But I didn't take it. For a little while, I'd lay in bed every night wondering was a mistake. I'm wondering if I'd ever stop thinking about her. But now I can barely remember what she looks like. And her face is... She's just gone. And she ain't never coming back. So... Three years long enough to get over someone. Absolutely. As the episode grows long and the clear return of that woman and her traveling buddies becomes apparent, Sawyer's monologue pulls double duty, not only reminding us of Kate, but affirming once and for all the security of the Sawyer Juliet bond. And if that wasn't enough, the story moves to the next morning when the snuggling blonde duo are awoken by an urgent phone call. 
from Jin, no less. Of course, we saw a few weeks ago uh, picking up those traveling buddies. And Sawyer arranges for them to meet in the North Valley and decidedly not in Dharma headquarters. That Dharma van from two weeks ago rumbles on up, producing Hurley, then Jack, and between them, due to some lovely camera trickery, Kate appears. All three of our Jira heroes look somehow worse for wear, ironically. Hurley is haggard, Jack worn, and Kate has bags under her eyes. With that, Sawyer is wordlessly shocked, and for us, the message is clear. Let the love triangle begin, and the new wrinkle be added to the Dharma Khan. It's a rather curious end to the episode. They're kind of overly pushing, I think, the the tumultuous impact of the girl he's given up on versus, you know, his new love. Um, in part because, you know, I mean, Sawyer has free will. He can... He can remain with Juliet, as we know he does. Um, It's also just the way it's visually presented, it really just feels like the episode just stops. And that's something that we've talked about before, where there'll be a decent cliffhanger, or a good cliffhanger, or a great cliffhanger, but there's kind of no, you know, oh my goodness, what will happen? It's just kind of, wow, the end. Um... It's a bit of that here, but it certainly doesn't take away from just just a fabulous episode, not just for the emotional uh, uh, weight to it uh, and the emotional connection explored by the characters in it, but you know it makes us sympathetic to Dharma. It brings Dharma back in a way that we didn't think uh, that it would return. Um, we're now deeply invested in, in a number of these Dharma people, um, you know, there's of course the Sawyer and Juliet romance that literally before our eyes goes from a, a spark and a smile to true happiness deserved absolutely by two characters who have, who have earned it. Something that, that we wouldn't have said uh, the first time we met Juliet, nor certainly uh, the first time or the, the first big stretch of time getting to know Sawyer, so... Just a fantastic episode. Then you add on to it this this literary flourish on, on behalf of the writers who just you know take this story out of order and rip it apart and put it back together again. And it's just done so so wonderfully, and it you know it achieves so so much in terms of the uh, the dramatic impact of the story. Really, really, really nice. Of course, we're not going to stop there. Let's take a. What is this week? A quick peek at uh, Lostpedia, uh, which says this is the first time Sawyer has been seen with no beard since Pilot Part 2. So there you go. Uh, There also is, Lostpedia says, a reference to the fan-based joke revolving around Richard Alpert and his guy liner. This is referenced by Sawyer, who explains to Horace that he was referring to his buddy out there in the eyeliner. Joke has been debunked in interviews with the actor, uh, Nestor Carbonell, uh, just saying that he has very dark eyelashes. Uh, they also mention that the logo on the suits of Sawyer, Jin, and Miles is the five-pointed star resembling the shape of some sheriff and marshal badges. This is the logo of Dharma Security. 
And lastly, in a, a fascinating entry from Lostpedia this week, the logo on the blue overalls Juliet wears has a wrench that would seem to be the logo for mechanics and vehicle servicing. So there you go. Sarcasm aside, it's great to be back with Dharma. We have more of it next week uh, in 509 Namaste. Um, it's just fantastic. And you know, I had in conversation, I had um, not forgotten the length of, of the season, but you know, I'm so used to uh, the 12 or 13 or 11 episode season that that seems to be so popular uh, now with uh, with. Oh, certainly cable shows, certainly a number of shorter run shows, but even uh, some of the 22 to 24 episode uh, network broadcast, well, I suppose network is broadcast, right? Some of the the, the, the broadcast network uh, shows, even many of them in the last couple of weeks have been promoting the, the winter finale. You know, they're essentially doing 12 and 13 episode seasons or half seasons or, or whatnot. And uh, completing episode 508, it's like, oh, probably not too much left to the season. No, no, we go all the way to 517 in this season. So certainly much, much more, uh, much more ground to follow. And just this, this wonderfully, wonderfully fun season. And the fun is really about to begin now. So as I said, next week will be 509. Namaste. It will be an episode that takes us into the new year. So best New Year's wishes once and all. It uh, also makes me think that we are uh, fast approaching the uh, the two-year mark for Looking Back at Lost, which I believe is somewhere around February 10th is the exact date. I always need to go uh, back to the website to, uh, to check it out. I first conceived of Looking Back at Lost uh, over the, the Christmas break, the winter break, um, I believe uh, I first secured the the Podbean page uh, toward the end of December. So certainly some, uh, uh, you know, some moments to, to to for me to think about on the production end, reaching the the two year mark here, um, and then uh, the actual podcast birthday, uh, not uh, not too far away. And of course, appreciate everybody who's uh, who's been listening from the beginning, whether you found me uh, almost two years ago or whether you've come more recently uh, I'm kind of at a stage now with the podcast where I, um, I'm a little bit less concerned about you know the particular numbers am I up am I down who all is listening it's kind of I think we've all settled into a good uh, into a good flow here but I I was touched to see um, really how many people are, are discovering older episodes of the podcast so Thank you, one and all. It really is tremendously flattering. I'd say, indeed, even just the numbers in general for, for my new episodes are, are uh, higher than they were, say, six months ago. So that certainly is nice as well. What's wonderful about this podcast medium is you can be, uh, you know, you can pick things up uh, at a later date. As I've mused before, you know, assuming that my my data provider, where, where all this stuff is saved out there on the internet, assuming that that doesn't somehow magically disappear one day and, and never come back you know who knows how long uh, how long into the future you dear listener are, are hearing this on my end I had better wrap this up because uh, this is being recorded once again the same night as it's being uh, uploaded and sent to the world so with that one and all I will say a happy new year best wishes for 2013 
unless of course you're listening to this very near in the you know very far in the future then best wishes just the same one and all and if you're listening to this in the past well i'm glad time travel has worked out so well so with that one and all talk to you again next week for 509 namaste take care everyone and bye bye